All right, so we are going to finish this value series, just a three-week series this morning, two weeks ago, focused on the gospel. That's the central value of our church. Jesus is at the center. We don't have anything if we don't have Jesus. And we talked about how important, how important prayer is, our dependence on God. We are absolutely, utterly dependent on God for everything, and so we need to live like it. And then last week we looked at prayer and community. So if we are going to grow to become the people God wants us to be, to be the community of faith that God wants us to be, we need to pray for one another. We need each other's prayers. And we looked at that as well. So this morning we're going to look at mission. We're going to look at in Acts chapter 4. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want. Um, you'll be ready to go when we get there. But before we do, I want to just say again, the first two weeks I've mentioned this, I'm going to mention again um, this morning, that this series is both actual, our values are both actual and aspirational. Okay? So, by God's grace, this church, we love Jesus. We love the gospel. It's precious to us. It's everything to us. But, Sometimes we can get more excited about secondary things and lose sight of Jesus and displace him from the center to the periphery. So we need to grow. It's aspirational growth. We want Jesus to always be at the center. We want to be passionate for him and follow him no matter what, trusting in him with all of our heart and going wherever he leads us. And then community. Community is important. You know, we love each other. We've got relationships, community groups. We're trying to cultivate all that. But it's not perfect. It never will be. But we need to grow. And mission. So this church does have a heart for our neighbors, for the nations, but we certainly have lots of room to grow. So it's both actual and aspirational. So um, God's with us in that growth, and he wants us to grow. So it's a good thing that we aspire to what he wants us to be. And even this morning, he can give us grace to grow us so that we can be on mission with him. So, mission and prayer this week from Acts 4. If you are a Christian, if you are following Jesus, then you are on mission, okay? He has commissioned you. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you even at the end of the age. So mission is not optional for Christians. But we cannot fulfill this mission in our own strength. Just like you can't save yourself, you can't save anyone else. Okay, so we are all on mission with Jesus if we're following him. But we desperately need his power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's fitting to start our look at Acts 4 back in Acts 1, at the beginning of the story of the church, the early church in Acts 1. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he showed himself to his disciples, um, proving that he had risen from the dead. And before he ascended to the Father, he said in verse, chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, it's like concentric circles, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So God is a missionary God. He's been seeking and saving the lost ever since our first parents bought the lies of the devil in the garden. So Jesus himself obviously came to seek and save the lost, like it says in Luke 19. And when he rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, he promised that he would send his spirit to empower his people, his church, to fulfill his mission. And so sure enough, we turn to chapter 2 of the book of Acts, which, why don't you turn to chapter 2 of the book of Acts? And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can turn there that way and find our the book of Acts on, um, hold on one second here, page 9, ah. 909, 910. <clears throat> so Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, were all together in one place, and suddenly 
there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So people from all over the place um, heard the commotion, went to see. Their response was in verse 8, How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Galatia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. So the Spirit's poured out and... The mighty works of God are boldly, clearly proclaimed, miraculously proclaimed in all these different languages at once, fulfilling that promise in chapter 1, verse 8. Then in chapter 3, Peter and John heal a man who is lame from birth. Everybody's amazed. But Peter wants to make sure to give credit where it's due. So flip ahead to Acts chapter 3, verse 11. So while this man who was healed clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Barabbas, right? And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this... We are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer... He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So this miracle happens, and Peter wants everybody to know how this miracle happened. It was by the power of Jesus. And so now that got them in some hot water, okay? So our passage, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed. Faith comes by hearing. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So the believers, the church is growing exponentially. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? How'd you heal this guy? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. So what happened in chapter 2 when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? They spoke the mighty works of God. Peter gets filled with the Spirit, and what does he do? He gives glory to Jesus, and he does so boldly. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, I'm glad you asked. Let it be known. Let me tell you. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation. I'm sorry, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw, key word here, the boldness of Peter and John, and when they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they didn't have formal training. These guys were fishermen, or Peter was. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, in the name of Jesus. So they charged them, called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So, our outline, simple, three points. First one is the one to whom we pray because the, the section we're going to focus on is verses 23 to 31. Okay? So, We'll keep reading here, okay? That's all context. <laughs> all right, Acts 4.23. When they were released, they went to their friends. How cool is that? It's a description of the early church. Their friends. Jesus, the friend of sinners, laid down his life for his friends. And these people not only became friends with God, reconciled to God, but friends with one another. Okay? So when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, this is the one to whom they prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they quote Psalm 2, which is the passage Brett read for us, at least a portion of it they quote. Why did the Gentiles or the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed king. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Do you see how they're connecting the dots between Psalm 2 and their situation? Jesus is ultimately the king of kings. And he's been anointed the Christ. So for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross wasn't a, a defeat. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't something unexpected. This was God's plan. So these believers, this is all in prayer. This is their response. 
And they weren't praying to a little local village god. They knew that the one to whom they prayed was seated on the throne of the universe, the sovereign of the universe, the sovereign God of the universe, the one who made the earth and the sea and everything in them. So he's the God who inspired this book and who said by the Holy Spirit the truth of Psalm 2. It is vain to rage and plot against Yahweh, against the sovereign Lord of the universe and against his, his anointed king, Jesus Christ. Because God the Father, Psalm 2, has already promised to his son that he will make the nations his heritage and the ends of his earth, the ends of the earth, his possession. So the early church had meditated on Psalm 2 enough. They must have had it memorized, right? Because they're just praying it out. They didn't have printing presses back then. So they had Psalm 2 memorized and they're meditating on it and connecting these dots and it's overflowing in prayer here in response to what had happened. They realize the implications of Psalm 2 for the spread of the gospel, for the mission. If Jesus is the anointed king of all the nations and if raging against him is in vain, then they can and they must spread the gospel to all the nations. And no obstacles, no threats can get in the way of that ultimately. So Jesus died to ransom people for God from every tribe and people and nation. So we, his people, can boldly share the gospel in every tribe and people and nation and know that that is not in vain. The mission will succeed. Resisting the advance of the gospel is what is really ultimately in vain. So the Jews, Herod, Pontius Pilate, tried to resist the Lord's anointed by killing him. Instead, they advanced God's predetermined plan by killing Jesus on the cross. They thought they were in control. They thought they took care of this threat, this false imposter, Messiah. But they were actually pawns being moved by the sovereign Lord as God fulfilled, advanced his plan of redemption. So in Acts 4, the Jewish leaders also thought they could silence the apostles just by threatening them. Stop preaching in this name. They thought they could arrest the advance of the gospel by arresting the apostles. Well, you can arrest God's servants, but you can't arrest the gospel. The word of God can't be chained, right? I mean, Paul's in prison, book of Philippians, and he's got prison ministry going on, so he's happy. So it's ultimately vain to resist the advance of the gospel because we're not dealing with some pint-sized tribal deity. We're not dealing with some mythological god of high school western civ or history class. You know, Mount Olympus stuff. We're praying to the real the living, the sovereign God. And if there is one God and he's made one way, then we've got a mission. So it's been said monotheism implies mission or even demands mission. So no wonder in verse 12, Peter said, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Which isn't surprising because Jesus said a similar thing when he was on earth, right? John 14, 6, familiar verse for many of us. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way. That is certainly not politically correct today. And even for, for us who do believe, sometimes we're uncomfortable like, man, you know, my neighbor is just such a nice person and they're sincere in their beliefs. And, or what about those people that, you know, are over in this other country or whatever? Sincerely believing in something doesn't make something true, those beliefs true. So I can believe that purple unicorns exist, but that doesn't mean they're real. 
and not believing in something that is true doesn't make it false. So atheists can believe that God doesn't exist all they want, but it doesn't make him not exist. So for any of you that might be wrestling with this, struggling with this, and, and even if you're not struggling with it, you're going to encounter people who are. So how do you address that issue? Well, I listened a while ago. To, I saw this little video clip by David Platt. Um, they did this secret church stuff where they would kind of like do this prayer meeting all night. And, um, you know, in many parts of the world, the church is underground because it's so dangerous to go public with your faith. And so oftentimes they meet in secret and sometimes they meet at night. And so this church was doing that. Um, and he addressed this question once, and it went something like this. So let's say for the sake of argument, okay, let's say, you know, you're not convinced there's one God and one way, and you think that's narrow and bigoted and whatever else. So let's say for the sake of argument, there's one God who created all things and that he did so in love. Okay, and he created us in his image to have relationship, friendship with him, to enjoy him and his creation and each other forever. And he says, just don't turn away from me. Trust me. If you turn away from me, you'll die. I don't want you to die. And let's say our first parents disobeyed. They rebelled. They wanted to determine for themselves what was good for them. And then imagine that this God is so merciful that instead of just saying, fine, to hell with you, he actually call the people to be his own, initiating a covenant with them, that he would be their God and they would be his people, and they would be a light to the nations. But imagine that they turned from him and worshiped other gods, that they kept rebelliously sticking their fingers in their ears and running away. And imagine that this God sent messengers to offer mercy to these rebels over and over again. And imagine that the people actually abused and even killed some of those messengers. And imagine then that this God finally came himself. He sent his own son in human flesh who suffered and died in our place for our sins to atone for our sins because we can't atone for our own sins so that we could have forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation with him. And imagine he says, if you trust me, you recognize your need, you trust me as your Savior, if you turn from your sin and trust me, accept this gracious gift, I'll forgive you all your sins, cleanse you, you'll be reconciled to me, and you're going to live with me forever. If that's the story how crazy would it be to look at that God and say, only one way? Like, how narrow and cruel is that? Aren't you bigger than that? Like, aren't you more loving than that? Like, put in that context, it starts to look a little different. So the real question shouldn't be, why is there only one way? But rather, why is there any way at all? God so loved this dark, rebellious world filled with dark, rebellious people like me and you that he gave his only son that whoever, yeah, one way, but look how inclusive it is. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. <laughs> There's no other name, but, but there is a name by which you may be saved. This is like really good news. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not hiding it from you. He wants you to know. So we need to tell people we've got a mission. And we don't have to fear because even if we face opposition, our God is the sovereign Lord of the universe who's in charge of everyone and everything. So this is the one to whom we pray. So what happens? What happens when that reality the reality of the one to whom we pray, who he is, how great, how powerful, how sovereign, how good. The reality of that. He's the one we serve. It lands on us with the weight of his glory. Well, here's one example of what happens. Okay, so um, there's this guy named Tim Kazee who's been doing this for decades, tramping around the globe, 
um, just seeing what God is doing in all kinds of places and oftentimes on the frontiers, you know, where the gospel is just kind of breaking into an area for the first time. And he's made a bunch of videos called Dispatches from the Front, which are really great. We've watched them um, in prayer meeting in the past and um, on Wednesday nights. So he wrote a book called Dispatches from the Front, Stories of Gospel Advance in the World's Difficult Places. And so he tells this story of a lady named Galena, who is a Sunday school teacher. So I intentionally pick just a normal, ordinary person, because then we can't hold it out at arm's length and think it's, you know, this is for like the super Christians, you know? So here's what he writes. It's easy to romanticize the experience of the underground church in the Soviet Union. Cool, courageous stories of smuggling Bibles, cat and mouse games with the KGB, and images of Soviet Christians worshiping in the forest, their pews, fallen logs, and their chapel walls, silver birch with a cathedral ceiling that reached the sky. But it was no picnic, no James Bond movie. The Soviet Christians were brutally persecuted, and their pastor's preparation for ministry usually took place in a prison rather than a seminary. But the underground church was not underground. Believers spoke of Christ and won many to him, even in prison. This was Galena's story. We'll call her Galena V because her last name is not easy to pronounce. She was a 23-year-old Sunday school teacher who spent five years in prison for her gospel work. But prison, hunger, and beatings could not silence her. She led many in her prison to the Lord, so she was transferred to another prison, and after that, yet another. For her, these transfers were just new gospel opportunities. Finally, Galena was transported by prison train to the utter east of Siberia, along with scores of other prisoners, the worst of the worst. As the condemned in their cages rumbled on through the Siberian vastness, the din of cursing and fighting was broken by a clear, sweet voice of singing. It was Galena singing of her Savior. A hush fell over the train car. Even the most hardened criminals turned their faces away to hide their tears. And mile after mile, hymn after hymn, Galena sang the gospel. It's really absurd, though, that the full force of the Soviet Union was bent on crushing a Sunday school teacher for the crime of being a Sunday school teacher. Such senseless hatred, when it erupts to the surface, is like opening a furnace door to hell. But the gates of hell were no match for Galena's God. One striking proof of that is that today, Galena is a pastor's wife in Siberia where once she was a prisoner of an empire that no longer exists. Can you hear Galena singing Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So this is the one to whom we pray and the kind of people that his spirit can produce. Now, second point, how does this text instruct us to pray? Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, in light of the truth of Psalm 2, in light of the connection of that to Jesus and the cross, look upon their threats and... How would you finish that sentence? Look upon their threats and... Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So notice first what they don't pray for. They don't pray for the removal of all threats and enemies and opposition and persecution and danger and risk. That was all assumed. They knew that God would be their protector and vindicator as he saw fit and when he saw fit. Their primary concern was that these threats not silence them. So, it's okay to pray against the threats. There's a lot of very mundane things that we can pray for because we can pray about everything. 
But how much of our prayer is kingdom-focused like this? You know, I think oftentimes our prayers are not particularly focused on the kingdom of God. If you think about, like, the last week or the last month, like, what kinds of things do you typically pray for? Health, safety and travel, gratitude for a meal is a good thing, financial provision, job provision, to do well on a test. Sometimes we pray for sports success. You don't need to pray about the Super Bowl. There's other things to pray about. So oftentimes our prayers are focused more on our comfort or even our little kingdom. But if you pull those things out, how much is left? It's just rhetorical questions for us to ponder. So John Stott once wrote, um, church leader in England, uh, yeah, wrote a bunch of books, just faithful leader. He once wrote, I remember some years ago visiting a church incognito. I sat in the back row when we came to the pastoral prayer. It was led by a layman because the pastor was on holiday. So he prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. Well, that's fine. Pastors should have good holidays. Second, he prayed for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick, and then it was over. That's all there was. It took 20 seconds. I said to myself, it's a village church with a village God. They have no interest in the world outside. There was no thinking about the poor, the oppressed, the refugees, the places of violence, world evangelization. So I don't think we pray like that here. 20 seconds about, you know, three small things. But it's a good way to check ourselves. So a couple quotes that might help you check yourself. John Bryson wrote this. If Jesus answered all your prayers from the last 30 days, would anything change in the world or just your world? Or I've never forgotten this quote by John Piper. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to call up more comforts in the den. So our family watched a documentary on Friday night. Adam Kramer recommended it to me. Thank you. It's called Free Burma Rangers. So you can find it on Amazon Prime. I would highly recommend it. Yes, you have to rent it. It's worth it. You know, it's worth way more than two lattes. So it's about this guy named David Eubank and his wife and three kids who formed, who formed a, a relief group back in 1997 called the Free Burma Rangers. So David is actually a MK and former spe- Special Forces captain. So from their website, this is what the Free Burma Rangers are. They're a multi-ethnic humanitarian service movement working to bring help, hope, and love to people in the conflict zones of Burma, Iraq, and Sudan. Working in conjunction with local ethnic pro-democracy groups, FBR trains, supplies, and later coordinates with what, becomes, with, with what become highly mobile, multi-purpose relief teams. After training these teams, provide critical emergency, emergency medical care, shelter, food, clothing, and human rights documentation in their home regions. So all of this flows from the Eubanks Trust in Jesus, and all of this is done in the name of Jesus very clearly if you watch the documentary. They have followed him where he's led them. So David Eubanks says in this documentary, and it comes with weight coming from him, you only have one life, so you might as well go for it. Because what are you going to hold on to? So the early church didn't pray for comfort, safety, health, a life free from risk and persecution. They prayed for what? They prayed for boldness. So question, is Bethel, are we, am I, are you suffering from too much boldness? No, we need boldness. Remember, our values are actual and aspirational. So this is aspirational here. But we pray to the sovereign Lord of the universe. And his powerful Holy Spirit is available to us just like to the early church. So, of course, we can't do this in our own strength. Hey, wait. You need Holy Spirit power if you're going to be my witnesses. So it's true for them. It's true for us. We can't save ourselves. We can't save anyone else. But God can. And he saved us. If you're a Christian, he saved you. That's a miracle. He can save anyone. And he can use you and me. So again, this Tim Kazee guy tells the story of meeting a guy named Tahir, a converted Muslim who had been raised in Uzbekistan. He was led to Christ by some believers in Latvia when he was a young man, and he wanted to reach his people for Christ. He had boldness in the face of opposition. So Kazi writes, In Tahir's words, you must reach Muslims with the language of love. 
people responded, and Tahir planted two churches in the Khazar region of Russia. But he has received violent threats from Muslims and Russian Orthodox leaders, and now the KGB has given him orders to leave Kazan within the month. He's already moved his family, his wife, and four children, and he will soon join them. Tahir is brokenhearted over being torn from his people. There's one thing that Tahir said to me that still sticks in my mind and heart like a thorn of truth. Comparing the response to the gospel by Muslims, he has reached with the indifference and fear of Christians to speak of the Savior. He said, the world is more willing to receive the gospel than Christians are willing to give the gospel. Don't you want that not to be true of us? Aspirational. So we need God to empower us and embolden us by his Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We need power. I need power. We don't have it on our own. So let's pray for it, Bethel. You don't have to be a super Christian. You don't have to be a former spec op soldier to be faithful here where God's planted you. Read Gail Santa Maria's testimony of how God is using her. It's awesome. So encouraging. Watch Colleen's video. They didn't know how to do ministry among college athletes in the midst of COVID. You know, there's all these restrictions. You know, sports are being canceled. They're being bumped and this and that. They prayed and God opened doors. And he can do it for you and me. So... Last point, if we pray like this, what should we expect? Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all, all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for boldness. <laughs> Spirits poured out, they're filled by the Spirit, and they spoke with boldness. So what are the connotations of the place being shaken? I don't know if we can be totally certain on this, but shaking is certainly tied to the presence of God in Isaiah 6. Remember, Isaiah saw the Lord and the threshold shake, and he's present like, whoa. Isaiah says, I'm undone, because he's in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. Exodus 19 at Sinai, God comes down. He's present on that mountain. And what happens? It shakes. So if there's shaking that happens here, isn't it confirmation that God is with them? That he's heard their prayer and answered their prayer and his spirit is empowering them. He's with them. So certainly God answered their prayers. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, Acts 4, 8, Peter was filled with the Spirit and he preached boldly. Now they are filled with the Spirit and they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. So, we've got to know the Word of God if we're going to speak the Word of God. And we've got to speak the Word of God if people are going to hear the life-changing good news of Jesus. And we need boldness if we're going to speak the good news of Jesus so we need the Spirit if we're going to have boldness so that whole sequence follows. So just ask yourself, what are you bold and shameless about? Because even the shy ones among us, there are things. Like, are you bold and shameless about your political views? Or recommending your favorite restaurant? Or talking about your favorite sports team? Or your favorite show? Or you're, see, you're not inhibited. Like, that's a picture of boldness. Like, I'm not the most extroverted person in the world, but, you know, I see some dude with a Steelers hat on, and I'm like, go Steelers. Why do I do that? Why am I so bold? Your favorite video game? Your favorite food? Like, what... So you can have your favorite sports team, your favorite show, your favorite video game, like all that stuff, okay, well and good. But let's not be evangelists for all those things. Let's be most bold and passionate about what is most important and urgent. 
So not everyone needs to cheer for your sports team or participate in your hobby or like your favorite restaurant or your TV show. But everybody needs to repent and believe in Jesus lest they die and go to hell. So again, Tim Kazee from that little book. In every land, Christ is saving, calling, and enabling men and women to take risks to advance his kingdom. Cross bearers who love him more than their stuff, even more than their own lives. These are the foot, foot soldiers of gospel advance. I share Ernie Pyle's affection for those at the front in every danger and season. Pyle, the legendary combat journalist of World War II, wrote, I love the infantry because they are the underdogs. They are the mud, rain, frost, and wind boys. They have no comforts, and they even learn to live without necessities. And in the end, they are the guys that wars can't be won without. On the gospel front as well, it's the foot soldiers that God uses to move the boundaries of his kingdom into more and more hearts. Not long ago, I was on the Syrian border where Christians run a little clinic providing medical services along with the gospel to Bedouin tribes. A British nurse named Claire told me that radical Muslims have threatened to kill them and burn down the hospital. She also told me they had not reported these threats because the government would close the clinic for the safety of the staff. How about that? We risk-averse suburbanites. She said, matter-of-factly, whether it's the bad man with the gun or the nice man with the tie, the result is the same. The clinic will be closed. We have no reason to stop now. They've stolen our vehicles and threatened to kill us, but they have not harmed us yet and cannot unless God permits it. And even then, it will be okay because we will be with the Lord. Even though she had faced armed robbers and lethal force, Claire's voice was as steady as her faith. Claire doesn't have a death wish. She has a living hope. She knows Christ is powerful to save her and to save all who come to him. We're all going to die. Even in the safety of suburbia, we're all going to die. Our kids are going to die. The only question is whether we're going to die spending our lives well or wasting them. So let's take some risks. Let's even encourage our kids to do the same. If our kids were to risk their lives on the front lines of gospel advance and die, that is a glory, not a tragedy. As much as I have all kinds of things I'd love to do with my kids and grandkids and great-grandkids if God gives me the years. So, younger people among us or watching, this isn't a cranky old dad. Well, maybe I'm kind of a cranky old dad. I'm starting to get that way, but um, I'm saying this to myself too, and I'm saying it to the kids and the teenagers. Don't spend half your life on video games and social media and YouTube watching other people live rather than getting out there and living and spending yourself on something that is so much bigger than you and so much bigger than all those diversions and sugar hits for the soul. And that goes for us older people too because we've got our own more sophisticated sort of kinds of sugar hits for the soul. And it's pretty easy to get addicted to them. And actually, they're not really any more sophisticated. So Betsy introduced me to Lilius Trotter, and I read this little book on her recommendation, and here's a quote from her. We were created for more than our own spiritual development. Reproduction, not mere development, is the goal of matured being. Reproduction in other lives. As the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we ourselves are saved to save. We are made to give. The pebble takes in all the rays of light that fall on it, but the diamond flashes them out again. Every little facet is a means, not simply of drinking more in, but of giving more out.
So our purpose statement, we exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. So I don't know about you, but I'm left like, help. We need to pray. We need to pray for boldness. But we can expect that God will give it. And along with it, let's pray for and expect that God can accompany our boldness with miraculous evidence of his reality. You know God can still heal, right? And he does. God can still do miracles, and he does. Do we believe that? Do we pray for that? We should pray for that. So if we never pray or expect his miraculous intervention, no wonder we don't see it. Remember what James wrote, you have not because you ask not. So let's raise our prayers and our expectations. So, little application before we participate in the Lord's table here. Well, all this is application, right? But this week, the elders had actually planned over a month ago to fast and pray again. We, we did this maybe a couple months ago, or a month and a half ago, something like that, and do it again this week, just praying for our body, for the good and growth of our church family, for the sake of our mission in our city and the world. So each elder's taking a day of the week, and we're praying. And I'm just mentioning it to you all so that you'll join us. Would you join us? So pick a day. Maybe just a meal. If you've never fasted before, start with a meal. And how do you do this? Well, just the time that you would normally eat, devote to prayer. And you know where a great place to start would be as far as what to pray for? You might want to just write a little sticky note that says, what am I hungry for? I'm, Lord, I'm, I'm hungry. At least I want to be hungrier for these things than I am for food. So would you make the gospel more real to me and to my brothers and sisters? Would you please help me to see my role in strengthening the community dynamics in this church, the, the love and all the one another's? And would you help my brothers and sisters do the same? And Lord, I, like, I want to be faithful in mission. Like, what is my role? Who, do you, who have you put in my life that I need to just open my eyes to and be praying for? Would you open up doors of conversation? I am, this is so out far out of my comfort zone. I need boldness. I need strength. I need, I don't know what to say. Help me to know what to say. I mean, that's just a good place to start. Last week, we talked about concentric circles. You can start in that prayer time for yourself and your family and your church family, your community group, that you, and just go out from there. And then, obviously, we join for a prayer meeting every, every Wednesday night from 6.30 to 7.30, and everybody's invited. Um, it's virtual at this point, so you can send, if you're not on the email list already, you can write an email to info at bbcde.org, and Gail will get you the link. All right? So, now we're going to participate in the Lord's table. So what's the connection? Is there any connection with all the stuff that we've just talked about and participating in the Lord's table? Yes. Lots of intersection. Lots of connection. So the only reason we have good news, the only reason we have a living hope, the only reason we have anything is because we have Jesus. So we have a gospel to celebrate right now. And... We need to reflect on our own lives and say, Lord, there's ways in which Jesus has been pushed to the periphery and I've allowed other things to get to the center of my life. And so forgive me and cleanse me. Thank you for the body broken and the blood shed. And please be at the center. You are the center. I want you to be the center. Be the center. And you've made us a body, Lord. You, you died that we would be one. So, Lord, I haven't loved the way I should love, but I'm so thankful that you not only saved and forgave me when you welcomed me into your family, but you continue to forgive and cleanse me and give me strength by your grace to love well, to love better. And I have been afraid and ashamed of the gospel so many times and I don't want to be again I need grace forgive me cleanse me and help me so the table is we sit at the Lord's table what in the world are we doing here he's our father Jesus is our brother 
man, this is the best place in the world. We get to feed on the grace that was purchased for us at the cross and be strengthened by it so that we can go out and live with Jesus at the center, loving one another well, and being light and salt in the community that God has planted us in, the neighbors, the friends, the coworkers, the family that God has planted us in. So, Beryl, if you want to come up, and uh, there you are. <laughs> and she's going to pr- play quietly while we prepare our hearts. So, this is a family meal. So, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, He's forgiven you of your sin, you've gone public with that faith in baptism, then this table is for everybody that's following Jesus. You're welcome to the table to participate. If you're not a believer, you're not sure what you believe, you're wrestling, you have questions, I'm glad you're here. It's fine. Just let the, you just take this time and pray, Lord Jesus, would you please make yourself real to me? I want to understand what it means to be a Christian and I've got these doubts. I've got these questions. Lord, would you please just deal with them so that I know what it means to follow you. I want to follow you. All right? So I'm going to pray for us. We'll have some time to reflect, and then we'll participate together in just a few minutes. Sovereign Lord, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are the one from whom are all things. You sustain all things. Everything. Should be to you, giving you glory for who you are. From you and through you and to you are all things. And we thank you that despite our Rebellion, in light of our rebellion and our sin, you sent Jesus. Thank you that we have a way home. We have a way back to you. We have the ability, by your grace, to be reconciled to you. We thank you for Jesus. Please make him more precious to us. Please help us love each other well as a body. Please help us to be bold to share this good news with those that you've placed in our lives. So feed us now on your grace and truth as we sit at your table. The only right that we have to be here is mercy and kindness and grace that we do not deserve. So we thank you for it and pray that you would strengthen us for your mission with your people in your name. Amen.